From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. It's been a tough week to be an Angelino. As the city mourns the passing of basketball great Kobe Bryant, we reflect on the lives of two legends in the food world who we've also recently lost. Frida was not someone that was going to let her gender define her and was not going to be pushed around by other people. The Packer, the Bible of the American produce industry, a magazine that's still around, they named her the first ever woman to win Produce Man of the Year. One would have to do something pretty remarkable to be dubbed the Mick Jagger of the produce world. And Frida Rappaport Kaplan did just that. With tenacity and the word obstacle banned from her vocabulary, Frida found her place in a male-dominated industry by introducing Americans to exotic fruits and vegetables that changed how we eat. Frida's passed away at the age of 96, and Gustavo Ariano is here to discuss what she's left behind. Hi, Gustavo. Hola, Evan. Man, she was such a force, a homegrown Angelina, born in Highland Park and schooled at UCLA. How did she get her start in the wholesale produce business? Oh, my God. You you want to talk about the quintessential Angelina, as you said, story. Here's Frida. Uh, early, about 1960, 1961, she's working as a bookkeeper for her uh, husband's family at the produ- the wholesale produce market down in downtown L.A. And at the time, she was working upstairs, literally, because there was the vision of gendered labor. So the women were upstairs, the men were downstairs. And as she would tell this story many, many times over the decades, one day the fa- there was a cashier who didn't show up, so Frida had to go downstairs stairs, you know, in an emergency. She's trying to sell stuff and she's noticing that there's a pallet of brown mushrooms that's not moving. So she tries to find someone to try to buy them. She finally gets someone, I believe it was from the old Alpha Beta chain. And they're like, okay, we'll take the pallet and we'll take way more of these, uh, you know, but we want the bigger order. So now she's freaking out. She's like, where am I going to get all these brown mushrooms? This is at a time where America, the only real mushroom that people were eating were white mushrooms, button mushrooms. So she goes down to Orange County. She finds a Japanese family who's specializing in these small, you know, these brown mushrooms, and then she sells them. Then she realizes everyone's got to make money off of all these bigger things. Maybe if I could try to sell stuff that usually people don't really order, I could make myself a niche for myself. And the reason why she was even working in the first place was because uh, at the produce market was because she wanted a place where she'd be able to breastfeed her daughter. You know, and and when when I look at pictures from that time. And you see Frida in these chic, form-fitting <laughs> dresses with a very, with like a pearl necklace, wearing hose, you know, nylons, and and ladylike shoes. It's just like it couldn't be more of a jarring image from a business that was famously male, rough and tumble. She must have had her her fair share of hazing. Oh, my Lord. Over the years, of course, it, it, at first it happened. In fact, I remember the LA Times, the paper that I work for, like would use this really sexist language in describing her and saying, oh, look, here's some woman trying to do this. Oh, isn't she so cute? Blah, blah, blah. But Frida was not someone that was going to let her gender define her and was not going to be pushed around by other people. And then eventually they all respected her. The most famous example of that, of course, when the Packer, the Bible of the American produce industry, a magazine that's still around. Around, they named her the first ever woman to win Produce Man of the Year. <laughs> I love that. 1979. So she goes to this banquet and she's like, she sees the plaque and she gives it back to them. She doesn't even say anything. She's like, 
I'm not the produce man of the year. So the Packer, they're like, uh-oh. So so they gave her another plaque that said the produce marketer of the year, and that's the name that the award still has all these years later. Like, people eventually respected her because, yeah, she was a woman, and yeah, her, you know, all the time she wore purple. That was a trademark color of Frida's, the company that she ran. But they knew she was tenacious. They knew she was steely. And more importantly, they knew she knew the market that she dominated, the, the, the niche, better than anyone. Describe the Kiwi story, because I feel like the story of how Frida brought Kiwi to basically the world is emblematic of how she approached everything. So at the end, she introduced at least 200, uh, by their accounts, over 200 uh, fruits and vegetables. In fact, if you go to their warehouse in Los Alamitos, they have a wall uh, painted with every single one, snap peas, Buddha's hands, finger limbs, whatever. But she made her name with the kiwi. So we're talking about 1962. Same thing, uh, Australian uh, uh, farmer, they, they tell her and say, hey, we have these Chinese gooseberries. Uh, they're really good, but we, and we want to get into the United States. How can you help us out? And she said, well, first, the uh, name Chinese gooseberry is not something that's really, you know, it doesn't really jump out. Remember, this is early 1960s, even before the Beatles, for crying out loud, just to show you how, like, back in the days this was. So she talks to other people, and she says that she was the one who thought of the name Kiwi fruit. Australians and New Zealanders, they'll say otherwise, but the point remains, she was the one that first brought the Kiwi fruit into the United States. And there was a big hubbub. Oh, look, here's this weird egg-shaped fuzzy fruit, and you slice it in half, and it's emerald green. And at first, it was a novelty. Of course, the kiwi became super big in the 1980s. So the way Frida always said it, she's like, we had an overnight sensation 18 years in the making. I sometimes think that the fact she was a woman led to some of the innovations that she that she managed to pull off, like the story where some markets found that people were confusing sunchokes and ginger. And so she decided to start using those, that clamshell packaging that described in great detail what the product was and how to use it. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was someone who saw things she would see what the consumer needed. She knew, and she, she would always say, "Look, the people who have these hangups over quote unquote exotic fruits, it's not the consumer. It's the producers. Frankly, it's the men who run these supermarkets and everyone except the consumer." But that said, the consumer's curious. They'll want to buy it, but they also want to know how to use it. So she, you know, I for me, what the famous story in that is the spaghetti squash. You know, here's a spaghetti squash, which now, of course, everyone eats. But when she introduced it, a lot of people really didn't know what it was. They didn't know if it was like a cucumber or maybe like a zucchini. So she'd get these stickers, pretty big stickers, in purple, of course, with Frida's that says what the uh, uh, spaghetti squash is. And then it would give you instructions on how to cook it, on how to prepare it. And the great thing about Frida, of course, that she was always innovating. So this is in the 70s and 80s. Nowadays, you go on Instagram, they, I, I, you know, and I'm not much of an Instagram video person, but a couple of months ago, I was seeing Frida's videos for how to chop down jackfruit, of course, the world's largest fruit that could be like 60, 70 pounds. And in 45 seconds, it taught you how to break down a jackfruit. And I remember sending a message to Frida. I'm like, Frida, all these years later, your, your company is still at it. You're innovating and you're doing such approachable and at the same time, fun stuff to be able to teach people how to cook. And they also did outreach directly to consumers saying on the packages, if you have any questions about the product, let us know. And the mail started to pour in. 
And not only that, here locally in Southern California, she used to appear on ABC Channel 7 with a weekly segment where she would be at the produce market and she'd explain to people, oh, this is this. You know, this is a habanero. This is a shiitake mushroom. This is our uh, shishito peppers. Those are all uh, produce, by the way, that she introduced into the United States. Nowadays, you might know who the farmers are. You definitely know your local supermarket people originally. But back in those days, no one knew who the brokers were. And Frida put herself out there. I mean, who was the last produce person, not farmer? Who was the last produce person that you ever saw on Late Night with David Letterman? The only one I could think of was Frida. I don't think I ever saw that. That must have been hilarious. Oh, my God. I, they, they, CBS Sunday Morning, they, uh, they recently ran a Remembrance of Frida. So they had a little clip. And so she gives him, what was it? I believe it was starfruit. And she's like, oh, you know, taste it. And this is like in the 90s. She, oh, she asked him, like, how is it? Tell me what you think it tastes like. Hmm. Well, that's damn near inedible. <laughs> and in Frida, instead of being offended, she laughs. She starts laughing because she just was so gregarious, so one of the most charming people I've ever met. Because, you know, from where we sit now in a place where food has become so sophisticated and supermarkets are so filled with with food from all around the world, to remember that there was a time that this was not so and food wasn't globalized and for Frida to have been one of the main personalities who created this inroad is is really something that that family will treasure forever as a legacy so talk to us a bit about who is uh, is now running the company Technically, Frida uh, gave control of the company to her daughters in 1990. So uh, Karen Kaplan, she's still the president, and Jackie Kaplan-Wiggins, she's the vice president, COO, and Karen's a CEO. So they've carried on her legacy. That said, Frida stepped down in 1990. At this point, that's 30 years ago. But up until really late last year, she was still showing up to the office every single day and night there. So at the end, she was checking on the books. She was doing, you know, she she was definitely going to every Wednesday, they would have a show and tell like the foragers for Frida's. They'd say, okay, this is the latest thing I found at the farmer's market. And I, I talked to uh, Mary Landis, who now runs a uh, olive oil uh, store in Los Alamitos and it was longtime forager for Frida's. And she'd say how every Wednesday Frida would basically run down the hallway so she could be the first person there at the kitchen. She'd ask the most questions. She'd laugh the loudest. She'd always have the first sample. And more often than not, she wouldn't leave any samples for anyone because that's how enthusiastic she was, even in her later years. Well, thank you so much, Gustavo. Such a wonderful, wonderful person. She's going to be missed. Gracias. That's Gustavo Ariano of the LA Times. We've been talking about the fruitful legacy of Frida Kaplan. In a moment, we look back on another life of a legendary Angelino. Stay with us. On the newest episode of Nocturne, KCRW's podcast about the night, rancher Sally Gale was driving home in the rain when she noticed a parade of newts risking their lives to cross a small country road and reach the lake on the other side. She knew then that their survival was up to her. If you touch something, you have a connection, and you don't want that beautiful little creature to be run over by some stupid car or truck. Hear the story on Nocturne, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Los Angeles may not be as well known for a barbecue as is Texas, Kansas City, and the Carolinas, 
But Woody Phillips' hot links and slabs of ribs have legions of fans. In a 2006 article, Woody's quoted as saying, I teach and train my family and employees so they can go on without me. Woody succumbed to health issues on New Year's Eve. Mona Holmes wrote about his legacy for Eater LA. It's so sad. Yeah, I know. I know. We, I, my whole family, we called him Mr. Woody. I mean, everyone called him Mr. Woody. Yeah, I mean, that was our go-to place, me and my mom. It was like, well, I mean, I still go there. I love going there. Me too. Tell us a little bit about Woody Phillips. Where was he from originally? Well, he was from a parish just outside of Shreveport in Louisiana. Um, He was the fourth of eight children. He was right in the middle, almost in the middle, number four. And during his early days, he took care of his younger siblings, and that's where he learned how to cook. Always super active in the church from the time he was little until he left the earth. But he wound up graduating from high school and moving from there to Texas and then ultimately to Los Angeles just before he had married his wife, Janitha, who he remained married to his entire life. Now, I know he worked in the aerospace industry before he opened Woody's. He did. Did he just open Woody's with this like imbued knowledge from his childhood or did he go back and like what we think of as stodging did he go back to like refresh you know I spoke to his family his one of his daughters uh, uh, Rodney Phillips who told me a little bit about him and barbecue was just in his his blood I mean he was from Louisiana lived in Texas he was part of that second great migration of deep southern blacks who moved from there to California or even the my family's case, New York, um, where there were jobs. But barbecue was always in the background, no matter who you were, <laughs> I think. Um, you know, because barbecue is is all a part of Texas, especially. I mean, like with the huge drums of pits or even brick oven ones that Woody used and his family still uses to this day, um, which is all laid out with bricks. They use a hose to keep it down and make sure that the, the smoky flavor just goes through everything that touches it. When did he open that flagship Slauson location? In 1975. And he convinced (laughs) a failing business. Uh, Actually, he was, according to his daughter, he was sitting across the street at a donut stand that I believe is still there and just observing the, the failing business for a number of weeks and then decided to go up to that business owner, offer to to buy his business for $3,500, and that's where the flagship location for Woody's was, right on Slauson near Crenshaw. What a steal. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it was pretty incredible what he, what he did and what he pulled um, from his own heart into something just so magical and perfect for Los Angeles. Are there other restaurants besides that Slauson location? Uh, there are, actually. Uh, there's one on uh, in Inglewood on Market Street, and there's another one on Florence near Western. And what was his approach to barbecue? Did he have a signature sauce? He did. He apparently it was an accident. I mean, there's always great accidents, aren't <laughs> of there? Of course. Um, but apparently he just kept simmering a sauce on a stovetop for a little while, didn't like the taste, came back an hour later, and then eventually two and a half to three hours later, really liked that sauce. And that's what he stuck with from 1975 until today. 
Deeply caramelized. Deeply, deeply caramelized. But what's so interesting is I love the meat there so much that I never eat sauce. I always get it on the side. And maybe I'll like dip a rib tip in Evan, it. Evan, for shame. <laughs> no, no. To me, that's the mark of really incredible barbecue <laughs> that the meat itself is just so imbued with flavor. It is. There's also the oak wood that they use in the fire. And that's where all that amazing smoky goodness comes from, from Woody's Barbecue. When he expanded beyond the first location, what was it family members who would take the helm of each subsequent location? Yes. Yes. I mean, but he would hop around to different locations, too. He was a constant, constant presence. Um, there's family members that are all throughout. When I actually found out about it, um, I was just hanging out in Inglewood, and someone said, Mr. Woody died, did you know? And I was a little bit in shock. And I went down to this Lawson location and met another one of his daughters, um, Tracy, who basically told me what happened. And she was just in the back, you know, just preparing and, you know, doing her thing. This is an absolutely family-run business, and, and they've been doing it that way for decades. Was he ill for a long time? He was. He had a stroke in 2008 never really recovered from it, unfortunately, um, and was still a presence at the restaurant, just not doing any heavy lifting or anything too physical for him. So he had turned over the reins quite he a did. while ago. He did. Um, I've always wanted to know, because his name is Woody Phillips. Correct. What's the relationship to Phillips Barbecue? Well, uh, that's his cousin. <laughs> There you go. I mean, it's Foster Phillips is the one who launched, you know, Phillips Barbecue, the two locations that are also longstanding, um, just just amazing places. I was actually there last week with my cousin to try it for the first time. And really? Yeah. Well, no, her trying it for the first time. Okay. No, no. My father would roll over in his grave if you heard me <laughs> say that. Yeah, we've been there many times. But yeah, it's still, they still crank out the same amazing thing. Now, what's interesting, though, is that they have two completely different techniques for their barbecue. Apart from the business, I can imagine that he was very linked to the community in South L.A. and that he must have been pretty involved. He was. You know the the Slauson location. There's that big parking lot right next to it. There, You might drive by there even today and there's some kind of activity going on, some kind of giveaway, some music or something going on. And so there was that. But he also was the guy who employed so many people. Um, throughout Los Angeles. He was also the man who helped people go to college, encouraged them to go to college. Um, he also administered a youth program through his church, which was also a very historic church, a Holman United Methodist Church in West Adams that he was a member of for 40-plus for years. He was just, you know, just this guy who very silently did this very hard work and, you know, went off and did his thing. I didn't know about all of this work that he did outside of the restaurant until his daughter told me. And and I think if he were still alive today and you asked him what he was up to, he probably wouldn't say much about it, just saying that he was working because he was just that kind of guy. What's your go-to order there? Well, <laughs> I would recommend getting the combo ribs, beef, and link dinner with barbecue beans, a cornbread muffin, potato salad, and sit down in your car with open windows and just bask in the smoke coming from the oven. <laughs> I think that's the best thing that you can do in remembering Woody Phillips very well. Thank you so much, Mona. <laughs> oh, thank you, Evan. That's Mona Holmes of Eater LA. We've been talking about the legacy and barbecue of Woody Phillips. And now for a little joy. There are culinary instructions, then there is the joy of cooking. 
a juggernaut that began in 1931 when Irma S. Rombauer self-published a first edition that consisted of 500 recipes and an intimate conversational voice. 88 years later, the ninth edition of the book is 1,200 pages long and includes thousands of recipes, both old and new. This new joy is brought to us by Irma's great-grandson, John Becker, and his wife, Megan Scott. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. I mean, what an amazing family to come from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it was... um... It wasn't really, didn't really dawn on me growing up that it was, you know, it meant so much to so many people. But after we started working on the book, that became abundantly clear. I can't even imagine that that happened when you were growing <laughs> up. I, just, I mean, it's, it, there's something about it that's, because it's so much more than a book of recipes for so many people. It's a an enormous, a weighty tome that's spattered with memories and food and that gets passed down. It's quite a legacy. Yeah. So let's have some history first. Who was Irma and what was her original impulse to write that first edition of Joy of Cooking? Sure. Well, so um, Irma, she was of a generation of of women who, you know, it was not expected for of her to learn a, a profession you know she was she had the kind of like the classic ladies education of learn some music some you know some of the arts but you know she she was basically a homemaker and then her husband when she was in her 50s and her, both of her children had moved out of the house her husband you know was diagnosed with a terminal illness and died by suicide and so she was you know without any marketable skills she decided that it was a great idea to take half of her life savings and then, uh, you know, write and self-publish The Joy of Cooking. What's interesting to me about the woman that you describe is she cooked for her family. So she was of that first generation of women with that background who didn't have servants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think on the cusp of that generation, for sure. I mean, I, I think at a certain point, Irma certainly did have some servants, but... Irma was not actually renowned, like a renowned cook. Everybody seems to agree, at least from, from what I understand, is that she was like uh, the consummate entertainer. She was kind of a club lady who, you know, really wanted to get in and out of the kitchen as quickly as possible. And you can kind of see that in her selection of recipes for that first edition. A lot of appetizers and finger foods and quick dishes. She really did love baking cakes, though. It really comes kind of comes through in those early editions of the book. So in that first edition, which was privately published, that she financed herself, like we would call it now a vanity vanity project, how did she get that into the hands of readers? Who bought that book? She she hand-sold it to first to family and friends, but she would also go into bookstores and basically try to convince them to sell it on their shelves. Um, eventually word got, got around and Bob's Merrill was interested in publishing the, the second edition, which, uh, was published in 1936. And they famously ripped her off. Yeah. You know, it's, um, they, uh, basically talked her into, um, a 50% ownership of the copyright. So, uh, you know, our, our situation is very unique amongst, uh, cookbooks and cookbook authors. We're kind of partners. Yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, it can be good and bad. Yeah, it's fast, really, really fascinating. I, re- I was reading um, for this interview, and I don't know if this is attributed to you, but someone was asked the secret to the longevity. And, and 
I think the response was that it was put together by self-taught non-professionals, which is like the DNA thread that runs through the book and which is so different from so many books now. I'm not sure if that that exact quote is is one that can be attributed to me, but yeah, I definitely think that the written by amateurs for amateurs uh, thread is definitely one of the key star longevity. I mean, not only did uh, Irma have a very personable and kind of the voice of a peer, somebody who's like trying to help a friend through through something and you know kind of cracking a joke along the way, but um, you know even Megan and I are not professionally trained, so it, it, in a certain sense we don't assume as much knowledge as perhaps some. Somebody who had a professional background would, you know, as home cooks who, you know, frankly don't know everything, we we really had a better idea of the kind of questions that needed needed to be answered for people. I, I think another aspect of the book that also contributes to its longevity is the I guess you could call it the infrastructure of the book. It's a very particular way of taking you through a recipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, so that method that the recipes are written in, and if you're a fan of Joy or you know it, it's very distinctive, um, but it's called the action method. And it is um, a method in which the ingredients and the instructions are interspersed. So it might say, melt in a medium skillet two tablespoons of butter. And so the ingredients are listed in, in line in, along with the method that they're used with. Um, so it's a very narrative recipe structure, and it really does lead you through the preparation of a recipe. So you're not having having to, you know, your eyes don't have to dart back and forth on the page between the instructions and ingredients. Yeah, I always loved it. it it's kind of a love it or hate it type thing. Uh, it takes a little getting used to if you're not used to it, but I personally really love it. So I have to ask, it's a massive project. And and you have to, you have to like do this type, tightrope act where you have all of these recipes that are at the core of the book that have all of these people's memories attached to them. And, you know, I'm sure like brownie recipes or cake recipes that people could make in their sleep. Um, so you have to respect that. But then you're updating cookware techniques, you're adding international flavors. And these days, our pantries are like insane mm -hmm. compared to what they used to be. So did you end up having like a, um, aside from the two of you, a committee that would help you decide? <laughs> or did you try and not use a committee? Uh, we did not use a committee. Um, however, when John and I first started working for the book about 10 years ago, we started by testing recipes um, from the last edition, so the 2006. And what we did as we tested those recipes was we would create, we're calling them recipe genealogies, basically figuring out when a specific recipe had been added in the history of the book and how it had changed over time. Give me a sense of that genealogy for a recipe, just to give <laughs> us an idea. Um, one recipe that was kind of surprising um, was just the pizza recipe, um, which had been in the book since the 40s. But in the 40s, Irma called it vegetable shortcake. Um, <laughs> but looking at reading it, it's not a pie. It's not a tart. It's made with dough and like red sauce and you know, vegetables and cheese. So it's a pizza, but she called it vegetable shortcake, which I thought was hilarious. Um, so that one was an interesting find. Um, and then other things that have been in the book for a long time that I wouldn't have thought like risotto um, or... Yeah, risotto was in the 1931 edition. That was a real like eye opener. Mm -hmm. So fascinating. And are there any recipes that were like in, in capital letters, do not touch throughout all the revisions? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, the pancake recipe, for sure. That was one we hear about probably more than any other. The oldest recipe in the, in the history of Joy of Cooking is it's has a really weird name. It's called uh, Sour Cream Apple Souffle Cake Cocaine. <laughs> so I think Irma got it from her grandmother. So it goes back to the old country. Uh, definitely a sacred recipe. Don't want to mess with that one. Some of the baking chapters, I think, are the ones that have stood up to time the best. The pie chapter. Um, yeah, is, the pie chapter is so excellent. interesting because, of course, I'm pie obsessed and um, <laughs> I'm constantly making pies and looking at pie recipes. And it was just fascinating to go back and read like the beginning. Mm hmm. That, that that's what you feel like you're re you're reading. You feel like, well, this is what all else is based on. Yeah, and we certainly added some new pie recipes. You know, there's like a car a caramel nut tart. There's like a fried apple pie recipe that was my great grandmother's recipe. Um, so we did make some additions to that chapter. Oh, and a um, an all butter pie dough because actually Joy didn't have an all butter pie dough until this edition. So there were certainly changes to that chapter, but I feel like that those chapters, the that and the cakes chapter really stood the test of time really well, perhaps because Irma preferred baking to other types of cooking. So let's talk about what's new in the book. Um, <laughs> where to start? Uh, yeah, where do you start? <laughs> International, is that, was that your biggest focus? Because um, we eat so differently now. We do. Yeah. I don't know if it I was... Big, it was a big focus, because was... like, that's, what, that's what we're passionate about. You know, a lot of the things that we like to cook are, are definitely like not traditional, quote-unquote, American cuisine. And so, yeah, that was definitely a big focus. But, um, you know, we also wanted to cover blind spots just in regional American dishes that, that Joy has had. Like Chicago deep dish pizza, that was something that, I mean, I remember my dad would be take me to a Chicago-style Chicago pizza place like almost every day for lunch during a certain period, like when I was visiting him. And somehow, for some reason, it just never ended up in the book. Uh, other examples was like, uh, you know, uh, St. Louis gooey butter cake. You know, What um, is that? It's, it's, it sounds I, wonderful. It's it is delicious. It's, so um, it's almost like a bread, a very lightly sweetened bread dough that gets kind of patted out really thin in a baking dish. And then you top it with this extremely uh, buttery sugar topping um, and then it, you bake it but you don't bake it quite to doneness you want it to still be kind of jiggly and then it is just this really moist and sticky amazing beautiful cake okay I'm hating the two of you <laughs> <laughs> because we know we're going to have to go down that route yes <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure having you here and talking to you, and congratulations on such a monumental work. <laughs> Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. That's John Becker and Megan Scott. We've been discussing the task of updating the kitchen classic, The Joy of Cooking. After the break, a spice master will teach us how to transform our everyday recipes with a pinch of this and that. Stay close. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. For novice cooks, one of the least understood elements of cooking is the use of spices. Enter chef Lior Lev Serkaz, a spice man if there ever was one. As the owner of La Boite, a biscuit and spice shop in New York, he often fields questions from home cooks who want to level up their knowledge of their spice cabinet. I guess you could call us Spice Curious. Hi. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. One of the most interesting parts to me of your personal journey is that your spice education began not in Israel, where you spent a 
big part of your childhood, but at a restaurant in France. And interesting because you don't normally think of a spiced cuisine when you think of French cooking. Uh, it is surprising that after a bo I'm born, raised in Israel and in the Middle East and exposed to a lot of cuisines, the kind of change for me, spice-wise, was France. Brittany, out of all places, not really known for much, not not to offend the people of Brittany. Butter. Uh, butter, great seafood. Uh, and I found myself in this beautiful kitchen in that little village of Concal, exposed for the first time to galangal and black cardamom and curry leaves and kefir lime leaves and blown away by this idea that this uh, super talented French chef was able to use them in such a smart way. What's his name? Olivier Rollinger. The restaurant was called Les Maisons de Bricourt. Uh, I owe him a lot. I owe him mainly this idea of saying that spices are an ingredient. They are a tool. They don't take away from the personality of the cook, whether you're a home cook or a chef. It's how you interpret them that's going to make the difference. And above all that, you really got to pay attention to spices. Um, using mediocre spices with good ingredients doesn't make sense. You know, it's so interesting to read you and and this this new book, the third um, of yours, Mastering Spice, that you co-authored with Genevieve Coe, a person... The amazing Genevieve yes, Coe. <laughs> a, a person we love, who is um, now at the LA Times. Um it's so interesting. You 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 think about spices as fresh produce that is dried, which is a completely different way, I think, for most people to think about it in terms of their longevity. I think many people buy a spice in their cupboard and 20 years when they move, <laughs> they have that same jar. The divorce, the breakup, the move, something happens, yeah. Uh, uh, when I started, uh, one of the first exercises was to see where they come from. And I kind of knew, but I discovered that they come from the farm, which is shocking, yet no surprise. And, and if they are a produce, they should be treated as such, meaning that there is a farmer somewhere around the world, not in the U.S., sadly, but one day, that grows them. And the same attention that people um, pay to, to their arugulas and to their eggs and to the meat and whatnot, it should be treated as such. There's the terroir, there's seasonality, climate change. All of these things really matter. Uh, the matter of fact is that they are just captured at their peak and dried if they're done properly. This book to me is so interesting, Mastering Spice, because it's fundamentally a cookbook that gives you a set of great, like, everyday recipes mm -hmm. that you can then tweak and make different using spices, which I think is something that many of us who are fluent in cooking do without thinking but the way you present it is really fascinating. So my first question is, why are we making blends? Why are we not just taking bottles and adding them directly to the food? Why do we start with a blend? Uh, both are good options. You could use single spices, whole, ground, however you want. However, you find yourself often needing three, four or more different spices. I just like to think of, of practicality and, and I would just blend them ahead of time. So when I do want to cook, I already saved myself the whole portion of measuring how much of each spice. 
So if I'm happy with a combination for uh, an everyday dish or once a week dish, I don't want to be grabbing these five, six jars every time that I'm going to prepare the dish. I pre-batch them. I also like consistency. So I know that they're measured equally and that's a huge time saving. And I think this is where I we lose a lot of home cooks that just feel that it's too much and then they just don't use spices. And and to the book itself, the, the real concept who came with from another great author and my editor, which is Raquel Pelzel, who said what you do at home and take for granted a lot of people could appreciate. It's this idea of taking everyday dishes and instead of making them over and over and over again. Which we all do. It's to make them over and over again, but just season them differently. And that alone changes the whole dynamic. It sounds a bit too simple at first, but it, it's really interesting to see. We had great feedback in the last couple of months for people to say, I'm just making my same salad or chicken or salmon or whatever. It tastes so different every time because I season it differently. And and that's a huge accomplishment, I think. You talk in the book about dropping the place-based barrier for spices and that how that also opens up the repertoire. Yeah. Um, for years, I personally thought that, you know, spices were reserved to certain ethnic groups. And, and there were geographical palates. Yeah. And so curry is for Indian food and, and masala is for something and, and, and on and on. And I realized that that wasn't true. I mean, and I have a lot of respect for, for traditional cooking, but if I choose to make what could be perceived as a curry and put it in my uh, oatmeal or yogurt for breakfast and then uh, on, on in a brownie or a margarita, who, who is going to arrest me for doing that, you know? And if it tastes good, that's all that matters. And I think that it's great to be inspired by these flavor profiles and adapt them to what you like to eat. Okay, so let's get a little specific. Please. Let's start with meatballs. I like meatballs. Because who doesn't <laughs> like a good meatball? And, um, and I think that that is certainly in a lot of people's rotation over the course of a month. So tell us how um, you take this basic recipe and how you would shift it. So this is a, a great example from my uh, Middle Eastern background. Um, I find that a lot of meatballs and, and burgers, the meat isn't seasoned. It's a patty or a meatball, and then you coat the outside. That's too great. late. Missed opportunity. Season the meat as you mix it. So there's there's the spice blend that goes into the meatballs. While you're cooking them, you can make a quick pan sauce by throwing, like in the book, those cherry tomatoes that open up and releases their juice. So you don't need to make two things separately. You make it all at once. And then if you already have that base, why don't you stuff it with either the cheese, add the olives, and the opportunities are endless. The seasoning could be different each and every time, adding tahini into your to your meat. Um, so really profiting from each and every opportunity to season the meat more and more. So let's pick a couple of different spice blends okay. from the meatballs. There's one with cumin seeds, dried rose petals, ground ginger, and ground ancho chili. Oh, that sounds... <laughs> it's fantastic. I, I just got hungry. It's, it's a mix between, you know, what could be perceived as Moroccan influence with the rose petals and the cumin, but then you throw the ancho a little bit to give it um, the little heat, but very subtle. Um and I think that this is because we have a lot of people that come and it's like, I have a jar of rose petals or I have a jar of something. What can I do with it? And I said, well, put in your meatballs. And it's like, can I? I was like, of course you can. You can put whatever you want in your meatballs. And I think that's so liberating for a lot of people to know that there's really no right and wrong. Another example of a meatball spice blend is sweet paprika, sumac, 
dried parsley, jalapeno powder. Yeah, a lot of great elements between the kind of earthy to the heat to the sour. So again, through the spice blend, I look at a spice blend as a dish. I try to have the composition of, of sour and sweet, a little bit of tang, bitterness, heat, all of these, and, and salinity, uh, so that the blend itself tastes delicious. Yeah, I love those categories that you have, these five categories of sweet, sour, hot, bitter, and savory. Bitter, which is a flavor that's completely ignored in cooking. But it's so important, so yeah. important, and so there in spices. Oh, absolutely. And again, keeping in mind that you don't sit and watch a, a movie eating a spice jar uh, or a blend, it should have character, it should be strong, it should be in your face a little bit because when you're going to add it to the meatballs or anything else, that's what's going to take it to that next level. Okay, so now let's go to dessert and let's talk about olive oil cake. Because that too is just this wonderful template that's like a blank canvas in a way. The olive oil cake came, I, I do a lot of traveling and a lot of events and it's always this kind of, what, what are we going to do today? And it's bulletproof. And you can flavor it with everything. It can become sweet. It can become savory. It could be with cheese. It could be a dessert. Uh, there are never any leftovers, but if they are, it can become croutons uh, or even breadcrumbs. Um, it's fantastic. Um, so again, the beauty of, of this olive oil, which gives it a more kind of herbaceous, savory note to that loaf of, of bread, cake, however you want to call it. And again, showing olive oil as an ingredient. Uh, people think of olive oil as a, as a fat component, but it's a flavoring component. It's so... Using non-tasty oil doesn't make any no, sense. No, no, yeah, um, yeah. And, and the richness of it is fantastic. And the coat, spices and olive oil really like each other. The oil coats the palate very well. Um, what I love about this this recipe or this set of ideas is that you go from like bread, which is made with the spice blend of dried rosemary, dried basil, and dried oregano, mm -hmm. which is super savory, slightly bitter. And then you have other spices that are more like traditionally warm, cardamom, cloves. Mm -hmm. And there's even the, 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 the glaze, the, the, the cocoa glaze one, which really makes it a, a desserty kind of thing. I, I like making desserts. Uh, I bring my chef savory knowledge into my desserts. I don't make a distinction between spices that are for desserts or for savory. It's the same thing to me. I like my desserts to be a bit savory and my savory food to have some natural sweetness in it, if that makes sense. There's a lot of crossover. So we live in L.A., where fresh herbs are easily available and inexpensive all year long. Why would we want to put dried cilantro, for example. I am in a, so in happy you asked that question. Uh, so I love fresh herbs and, and they're fantastic. The way I see it, it's, it's me personally. You can take it or leave it. When I use fresh herbs, I use them now. I make something, I make a dish, a preparation, and I serve it or eat it right away. They don't tend to keep for a few hours, definitely not the next day or the day after. So that's one thing. That's where I would make the decision whether I want to go fresh or dry. High heat cooking, definitely dried herbs. The fresh herbs will tend to become bitter, char but bitter in a not so pleasant way. Again, I will go to the dry herbs. And then if I'm making something that I want to keep for a few days, serve three days from now, I'll definitely use the dry herbs that will retain more flavor. They won't spoil. They won't ferment. The beauty also of dried herbs is that they hydrate. 
they rehydrate, so they absorb the liquid from the cooking and allow you to thicken a lot of preparations. So now I have just some very specific off-the-wall questions about spice. Hawaj. Mm-hmm. Describe what it is and how it's used. I'm currently, it's an obsession of mine. So, uh, hawaij means blend. It does. That's all it means. So, if you go to a spice vendor in in Israel or the Middle East and ask for hawaij, it's like walking into a shoe store and said, "I want shoes." They will ask you hawaij for what? So, there's a hawaij for coffee. If you're Yemenite and it will be more whitish, there's a hawaij, a Yemenite yellowish. Uh, for soups, bean, bone marrow, and, and it, which is probably what you have. Love. And there's a lot of variants in between. What most people know of as Hawaii today um, in the U.S. is the more yellowish turmeric, cumin, black pepper, and whatnot. It's so delicious and savory with a tiny little bit of heat. It's very earthy. It's great thickener because of the turmeric in it, so it really thickens sauces. And it really delivers this savory note to the most simple roast piece of vegetable. And that's what makes it so craveable, I think. What is kubeb? Kubeb are berries from Indonesia. They're called also tail pepper because they have like a tiny little tail. It looks like a black pepper with a tail. They're not pepper. They're not part of the the pepper family. They have a real nice uh, pine needle resin note mixed with grapefruit rind, if that in your mind can make sense. They are an amazing bitter. So talk about bitter flavor. If you're looking for a bitter, kubeb are your go-to. Funny enough, they're found in a lot of the Ras El Hanout in, in Morocco for that quality of, of citrus, bitter, uh, and freshness. They're really like very refreshing also. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much, Lior. Thank you for having me. I've been talking with Chef Lior Lev Serkars. He's the owner of La Boite in New York and author of Mastering Spice with Genevieve Coe. Let's continue our spice journey at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, where Jillian Ferguson is on the hunt for sweet potatoes. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. One of the most memorable things I ate last year was a sweet potato taco at Onda, the restaurant from Gabriella Camara and Jessica Coslow that's just a few blocks away from the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. And I am very happy to be talking with the chef this morning, Chef Balo Orozco. Balo, you were the creator of this sweet potato dish, am I right? Yeah. First of all, if you can just walk us through all of the components, what's on the plate? So we marinate the sweet potato in shiokoji, kind of like overnight, and we roast it like very slow until it's like super soft and all the sweet comes out. Uh, we make a crema in-house, we culture crema, and we add a little bit of garlic and lime, then once the sweet potato is roasted, we grill it, we cut it, and we add the salsa matcha that we make with chili cascabel, morita, brown sugar, and sesame seeds. Well, I want you to walk us through all of those components more slowly. So first of all, shiokoji. Shiokoji is an inoculated rice. It's used a lot in Japan for making soy sauce, making miso. What does it do to the sweet potato? It kind of breaks down all the sugars. And when you're like roasting it, all the sugars comes out faster, you know, so the sweet potato is softer. So it's both tenderizing as well as adding flavor. Correct. 
because the texture of this sweet potato is one of the things that is so remarkable about it. It's so delicious. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you have the sweet potato, and then you mentioned the salsa matcha. Tell us what a salsa matcha is and how you make yours. So usually a salsa matcha is made with like peanuts, sesame, a bunch of seeds, and different chilies. I just really wanted to make it super simple, and this one has only cascabel, which is like very spicy, and morita that is more like sweet and smoky. We blend the chilies once they're fried. So we fry them at really high temp, kind of like 450, almost until they're burnt. So the sauce is black, but it still has a lot of flavor, right? The brown sugar, it just adds a lot to the dish. A bunch of herbs on top, like mint, cilantro, and dill. Dill, really? Yeah. And I mean, fresh tortillas, you know? Yeah, we should say that the sweet potatoes come out to the table plated and then with a side of tortillas, and you can make your own taco at the table. I love that. It's super simple. That's what I love about it, you know? It's super simple, and I've talked to so many people who, who want to eat more plant-based meals, and they just they ask me, you know, how, how do I eat a plant-based meal that feels complete and filling, and I think this is a perfect example. Thank you, Balo. Thank you, Jelen. That was Chef Balo Orozco, chef de cuisine at Onda, which is at Wilshire and 7th, just a few blocks away from the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. It's a very exciting day at the Wednesday Farmer's Market today because County Line Farms is finally here after almost a decade of waiting. They've now entered the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market. I probably sound like a super fan. You've heard them many times on the market report over the last few months. But I'm here today with founder David Redsky. David, congratulations on being here. Thank you so much. Quite the accomplishment for us. <laughs> so tell me the story. How long have you been waiting? Is it really 10 years? Well, the story goes, in 1992, I used to come to this market from Santa Barbara, and I was farming next to Tutti Frutti, so I was an apprentice. I basically did my undergraduate at Fairview Gardens. About um, 10 years ago, yeah, it's been 10 years since we started uh, the thermal farm, and we've been on the waiting list. We applied to get in, and it's, we've, Megan has pushed through, and here we are. Well, we are all so excited. One of my favorite things to do is just to come down to your booth and see what's growing. Today, I have these funky little pods in my rat hand. Rat-tail radish. The most appetizing name for a vegetable ever, rat-tail radish. They look like curly green beans with a pointy tip. Yeah, and they even sometimes look like okra. Oh, yeah, they yeah. do kind of look like okra. like okra. They actually, you know, radishes grow underground. And the interesting thing about this rat tail radish is I'm sure it has a, a long root on it, but we're actually picking these pods as if you are picking beans off of a plant. They flower, and it's a white flower, and then they send out these pods, and the pods taste a lot like a radish. And can you just eat them raw? Eat the pod, eat the whole thing, it's crunchy. If they're on the larger side, they tend to be fibrous. Mm. When they're smaller, they are tender and, and crunchy. And sweet. Swedish radish type oh my like. gosh, it's delicious. <laughs> well, anything else that you're super excited about here today that we can look forward to in the coming weeks? Well, first off, just the energy of having everybody be so excited to see us here. It's just, it makes it all so meaningful for us to do what we do out on the farm. And it's just great to be here. If I was to put a plug on one other item, it's our cauliflower mix. And we're just taking the heads and we're making a mix of all the varietals of cauliflower that we grow. So a customer doesn't have to come and purchase a huge two pound head of cauliflower. They could just buy it by the pound or by a quarter pound. And it's really nice and to 
you could do so many things with it. And I should also say that the, the cauliflower mix includes purple, orange, and white cauliflower. Correct. So yes. it looks like confetti. Yes, it's beautiful, especially this time of year. It just adds lots of color to this time of year. Well, David, thank you so much. We're all so happy that you're here. Well, thanks. Thanks for taking the time. That was David Redsky, founder of County Line Harvest. And you can now find them at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. After the break, Bill Addison stops by to review a taco that will have you driving to Boyle Heights this weekend. Stay with us. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Finally, it's that time of the show when LA Times food critic Bill Addison stops by and makes us very, very hungry. He's here with a restaurant review that I personally am very excited about. El Russo, a taco trailer in Boyle Heights. I can't wait to go. I will go with you. Okay, so you need to just read that part of the first paragraph where you're describing the food. Okay. You walk up to this scene and you find Walter Soto standing under a makeshift tent in an industrial corner of Boyle Heights. He's making tacos in rapid batches of four. He pitches handfuls of shredded Monterey Jack cheese onto the griddle in little piles. The strands hiss and buckle in the heat before they fuse into a circle. He lays beautiful, speckled, just-made flour tortillas on top of the cheese. And he flips the whole thing over and lays over a slick of refrito, and then he crowns them with meat. Chopped carne asada, most often, but on weekends, it's beautiful birria de res or chile carrado. So this is like such an interesting creation because you have like the chicharron of queso, and then yes. you, but then you have the beans... It was interesting. He early on, he's been they've been here about three years, and he was just putting whole beans over top. But recently, he's been serving them in the more pureed form, and it cohesives really beautifully. And his partner in crime is Julia Silva. Julia Silva is just as important to this process as Walter Soto is. She is the one making these beautiful flour tortillas. She's been doing it since she was four years old. Her mother is a master of the craft and passed it down to Julia. You watch her and she it's like she has vision in her hands. It's almost like watching a sushi chef mold a mound of rice into nigiri. It's, she, she hardly even looks at what she's doing. It's just like pluck the dough, pat, 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 fling it on the kamal, waits a few seconds, not even looking, flips it over, puts it in a stack. Ugh, it's so great. So I understand that if you're lucky and she has time, if you say a secret word, you get one of those insane sobaquero. Yes, the sobaquera. Um, it's a complicated word, and it actually it can be considered a pejorative. It's a derivation of the Spanish word sobaco, which means armpit. And it's, it's called so, as one theory goes, because the tortilla maker is kind of tossing it between her arms, almost up to her uh, arms and shoulders. But... Watching her do it, 
a pizza maker comes to mind, but it is a singular thing. And she, again, it's this, she flings it on the Kamal and she's kind of folding it and refolding it as she gets every spot brown and she hands it over to Walter Soto like it's a blanket. <laughs> and you ask him what he wants in it. And he says the Chile Colorado, which is um, a recipe from um, Silva's mother. And I mean, I like stained my half of my face eating this thing. And uh, Soto's brother Irvin was like, yeah, you need to take a lime and squeeze it on a napkin and clean your face off, senor. <laughs> <laughs> So are they there every day? They are there every day but Sunday. And this is it. There's nothing extraneous about it. She's making these incredible flour tortillas. He's griddling the tacos. His brother is often chopping the meat. And you come in and you go out in that beautiful Los Angeles way. And I understand that Julia's mom is going to be coming soon to help with the tortilla making. Well, they are... Um, moving their operation soon into a customized 20-foot truck. They're going to be in the same location in Boyle Heights, right off of Olympic Avenue. and um, But they're going to have space to really uh, spread out. So specialties like the sobaquera and the birria that they do on Saturdays, they're, they're looking to be making it every day, which will be a treat for us. Wow. Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks, Evan. That's Bill Addison, restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. We've been talking about El Russo in Boyle Heights. That's it for our show this week. If you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And as always, leave us a review if you like the show. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, Chuck P., and Desmond Taylor. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, and Kenny Ng. I'm Evan Kleiman, and I'll be back next week with a new episode of Good Food.